Um, can I uh, highly recommend this yellow slip inside your brochures? Uh, it is the uh, Focus Dinners. It's a great opportunity um, to get to know uh, some overseas students, and it's a fantastic opportunity for them to get to know some of you. Uh, one of the great joys about visiting and uh, studying in another country is not just learn stuff, but to get the, to know the local culture and get to know the local people as well, and especially Christian people who want to live out their Christian lives in front of others. Uh, it's a great opportunity. Do fill that in and, uh, and hand them in. I wonder what you perceive and what you reckon is the problem with your church. Well, the church in general, really. Uh, I wonder if you think your buildings are inadequate. You know, we, we have a little weatherboard building uh, for our church. Uh, it's always too hot in summer and too cold in winter. It's just a terrible little place, inadequate Sunday school facilities. As you know, we've got lots and lots of kids at school, at Sunday school and stuff like that. Uh, I wonder if you think the problem is the music. I think Kaz will share with me that most complaints about annual conference is hardly about the conference itself, but the music. It's either too fast or too slow, too loud, too soft. It's that sort of stuff. I wonder if you think it's the people. That's the problem. It's the people. It's the people in church. You know, the wrong age group. Or, you know, the right age group but the wrong gender. Or, you know, the right gender but, you know, unavailable. I don't know about you, but for Peter, for Peter who last week reminded us of the truth of the scriptures, reminded us the truth of the Old Testament and the New Testament, reminded us to pay attention to them, pay attention to that truth which, by the grace of God, has given us everything that we need for life and godliness, that truth that will actually see us to the eternal welcome, that truth that will stop us falling away, if that is really important then the most dangerous thing that can happen in our church today is false teaching. Uh, I didn't think up of this title. Uh, Someone else did, but I think it's a great title. Uh, It picks up on that last verse um, in this chapter. But I think the greatest threat to our churches today is destructive heresies. Because all heresies at the end of the day, all false teaching is destructive. That's the nature of heresy. It's destructive of individuals. It's destructive of churches. It's destructive of the teachers themselves. It's a horrible, horrible thing because those things will actually rob you of the truth that provides all things that you need for life and godliness so that you won't reach the welcome at the end. So there is a chance that you'll fall away. It is dangerous. Christianity is built on truth. Truth of the scriptures. Truth of Jesus being Lord, which probably the only theological point there that you'll see there is that these false teachers deny the Lord who bought them. Deny Jesus, deny Jesus who's the Lord who rescues people, who redeems people. Other religious systems, well, truth doesn't really matter. Uh, My dear neighbours across the street actually belong to the Baha'i faith. And I love them dearly. They're great neighbours. But part of the problem with talking to people in Baha'i faith is just really difficult to have a decent conversation. Because they believe that the world's major religions actually successive stages in the ongoing revelation of God. They believe that all religions come from the same source and have the same essential purpose, to guide and educate the human race. So they think they have this superior view that assimilates all different religions, all different views. They don't care about false teaching or true teaching. They just care about unity. 
So every time I talk about Jesus being Lord, who's actually historically died and rose again and meant something, well, it's just assimilated in their system. Assimilated with their understanding of Islam, which doesn't believe that Jesus has died, doesn't believe that Jesus has risen from the dead. It's all the same. But Christianity is based on truth, the gospel. And that's why the perversion of the gospel is the very death of Christianity. It really is destructive. And so Peter says, false teachers have been with us. They are amongst us. They will be with us. Last week we finished with this. And we have the words of the prophets made more certain. And you will do well to pay attention to it. As to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Prophecy is fantastic. But then somehow our translators have put in a lovely title, a new chapter heading. And you think, well, that's all there is to say. No, because the next verse that comes along is, yes, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, chapter 2, verse 1, but there are also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. At the end of chapter 1, we talk about prophecy, about prophecy that's made certain by the apostolic witness. Made certain by that. But hang on, just as there were false prophets in the Old Testament, in the old days, there are prophets, false prophets now, and there will be false prophets. Uh, will you know, though, the connection between false teaching and false prophecy? Uh, I think sometimes we, we try to separate those two things quite widely, um, as though they're separate things. But one of the things that Peter does here is he uses it quite interchangeably. Uh, there were false prophets, watch out for false teaching amongst you. That's just a, something to, to note. And they've been there, they will be there, they are there. You can see that. Well, let's have a look at some of the um, methods of false teachers. I don't know whether he came to EU public meetings to learn how to be a false prophet, but here's false prophecy 101, right? 1001. This is how you are to be a false prophet, uh, how to be a false teacher. The first thing is you've got to do it in secret. You need to smuggle it in. You don't broadcast things. I don't know whether you've ever, had, you've ever been robbed. Uh, thank goodness we've only been robbed once. Uh, it was at the anniversary dinner of, of the local church that I used to go to. Uh, I, I just remember coming back and, and the lights were on, the doors were open, the garage doors were open. And I walked into the house and I looked up and there was a skylight. That, and we never used to have a skylight, right? Um, <laughs> they cut a hole in the roof and cut the alarm wires, jumped in the house and ransacked the place. They did that while all of us went away. They did it as a surprise, as secret. They didn't actually leave a calling card to say, Saturday night, we're going to come by your place, we're going to ransack the place. the, The secret to being a good thief is surprise, is secrecy. And I think the secret to being a false teacher is also secrecy as well. They secretly introduce destructive heresies, it says there. Literally, the word is smuggle them in. That's what you do. You smuggle them in. It's cloaked. It's disguised. What works is deception. You see, how would you go about doing that, right? See, if you you go and and you go on, on a door knocking run and you try to start up your religion and you go, hey guys, I'm a false prophet. Please follow me. I don't think you're going to get many followers. But if you just smuggle in and you try to side with the truth, well, you might have some success. 
Uh, Jesus called them uh, uh, wolves in sheep's clothing. And we're very good at checking out the wool, the merino wool that's on the outside. And we're not very good at checking out what's on the inside. But what sort of wool do people use? Well, you can use affiliation, groups, right? Uh, guilt by association. So also good things by association. Some that belong to certain groups. Well, there's certain things that go with it, you know? Graduate from Moore College. I was trained with the ministry training strategy at New South Wales University. I went to Moore College. I, I work at EU, Sydney University. There's good quality merino wool. That's what it's about. Or charisma. It, it, it's about, you know, having a warm personality, nice big smile. So, you know, full head of hair. Poor Rowan, right? He'll never make a good false prophet. <laughs> but it, it's that sort of stuff. Or, or degrees. Lots of letters after your names. Or even before your names, or after your names, whatever it is. Or past reputation. There you go. Here's another way. You just work the system for a good 15 years teaching the truth until you build up a great reputation, and then you just shift from your teaching, and you drag people along with you. I don't say that lightheartedly. Uh, one of my favourite Bible teachers in years past was a guy called Roy Clements a man who worked for the UCCF, the uh, Universities and College Christian Fellowship, sort of like the AFES equivalent in England. Uh, Worked as a pastor in in Nairobi, in Kenya, built up a a huge church there. Built up Eden Baptist Church next to Cambridge University. And not too long ago, only a few years ago, spoke at the Katoomba Conventions. Great speaker, great teacher. But he's also left his wife and three kids and now set up home with another man. Like a mole going in. Or you can be effective, right? You you know, follow me because I'm effective at what I do. Pragmatics. You you want to build a big church? Well, I'm good at building a big church. I've got the truth. And it's very hard, isn't it? All those sort of merino wool stuff, all on the outside, sometimes it's very hard to distinguish. Some of it's quite blatant, of course, uh, this man is uh, John Shelby Spong. He comes every uh, few years after he's written a book and does a tour of the world. Uh, he's done lots of interviews and lots of funny books. Uh, Jesus for the non-religious, uh, the sins of scripture, exposing the Bible's text of hate to reveal the God of love. Uh, he does a whole lot of things. And, you know, he quite openly says that he's against the Orthodox Church. Um, he's trying to produce this new faith, new belief. Uh, so, you know, in some ways he's just a straw man. But, hey, frankly, it's out there. Um, I got hold of an interview uh, with him and Robbie Lowe in a magazine called New Directions back in 1998. Uh, and it says this, right? The, the interviewer was actually quite open with him. He asked the question, uh, your latest book reads as a total denial of the Christian faith. Uh, Spong replied like this, Bishop Spong at that time. It explains why Christianity must change or die. I've written it for what I call believers in exile. He goes on to say, I'm writing for the non-committed, where Christian symbols are not meaningful. I'm an evangelist to church dropouts. I've no objection to traditionalists using symbols, but I try to redefine God in non-theistic terms, like the mystics and the process theologians. Notice, most heretics, most people who pervert the gospel, they often say that they do it for good motives, for evangelism. I'm actually trying to reach out for the lost sheep. That's why I'm changing the message a little bit. Can I say, be careful. If you've got a heart for evangelism, you make sure that you preach the gospel, 
and not just trying to manufacture the truth so that more people can come in. He goes on to say, God is a human construct, but it points to something absolutely real. God in Christ is the experience, uh, though the explanations can come from all over the place. Uh, we're looking for new words for an old experience. He's using words like God and Christ, but he wants to rewrite the script. I know he says he only wants to modernise the language. That's what he's trying to do. But I think he's actually trying to change the explanation. Uh, So the interviewer asks him, uh, so give me some examples of this. Well, the doctrine of the ascension can't survive the Copernican revolution. The discovery that we don't live in a three-tier universe. Darwinism, Darwinism demolishes the original sin and the fall of man. We're evolving higher and higher. Therefore, Jesus as a sacrifice for sin, well, that makes no sense. It's a repellent image. Jesus is not redeemer, a rescuer, but God calling us to a deeper and fuller humanity beyond divisions. You get the picture, don't you? It's not modernising the language here. You remove the fall, you remove sin, you remove the cross, you remove ascension, redemption, in the name of evangelism. Everything that we hold on to in the gospel is taken away. Verse 3 goes on and says that they not only secretly smuggle things in, they not only deny the sovereign Lord who purchased them, who bought them, they're full of greed, exploitation, and they've made up fiction. Uh, the time's a little bit beyond us. I was going to show you a little clip from A Current Affair, um, you know, that great piece of journalism. So I'm sorry about that, but it, it was just a shortened version of another piece that they did, um, not they did, but the ABC did with Chris Masters, uh, exposing the Brisbane Christian Fellowship and the Melbourne Christian Fellowship that's been around the place about the sort of greed and the exploitation and the made-up stuff that, that goes on. Uh, last weekend, I took my kids to Thomas the Tank Engine, um, uh, which is fantastic. But across the other side of town uh, was the Mind, Body and Spirit Festival. I don't know whether you guys are familiar with that in the Darling Harbour. Uh, lovely pieces of fiction that goes on. Um, omens and oracles learning the secret language of spirit. Throughout all time, there have been beings who are oracles, human and otherwise, and divination is growing in its use and significance as we approach 2012. In this amazing seminar, we'll learn the history of oracles in this planet and beyond. Lucy will take you from the ziggurats of Samaria to the groves of the Druids to the oracles of Delphi and through the prophecies of John Dee, Mother Shipton and Lakota people. Through an understanding of the omens and oracles, we will learn to speak the language of spirit and explore our current earth changes to help us all understand and acknowledge the deep significance of our world and the work we're doing. And there's stuff about crystals and mysterious orbs and psychic spoon bending and Egyptian alchemy and all sorts of stuff like that. Many years ago, um, back at Sydney University when I was in first, second year, there used to be on a group called SCUM. There used to be a group on campus called SCUM. The Sydney Church of Christ University Ministries. Uh, they used to go around uh, talking to people, asking them whether they'd like to join a Bible study group. Fairly innocuous, fairly, fairly mild, but it was a trap, an easy in, but they ended up doing cultic things. Um, Margaret Singer is a researcher into cults, Uh, She's actually the Emeritus Professor of Psychology at the University of California. And she's written a lot about cults, about the sort of things that they do and how you actually see cults. They're things like control over time, 
As you you join a group like the Sydney Church of Christ back in those days, every minute of your day is organised for you. You'd wake up at six o'clock in the morning and there's set quiet times for half an hour. You've got to do certain things and, and, and do a whole lot of other things and duties at home. And then you do your normal work like universities, but you need to make sure that when you come home from university, there's a certain list of names that you're going to follow up that evening. And that evening you make those phone calls and you report back to your house leader of what those phone calls were like. And then you do other things. And then the weekends were organised for you as well, because who you go out with was also organised for you. Total control over time so that there's no sense of of your own time, your own sense of of processing your own things. Creating a sense of powerlessness. You're asked to leave your home, all in good reason, of course, because, you know, you live further away than than most people, half an hour away, so you ought to move closer to the university. But let's set up these households. let's Let's remove the social contacts that you're familiar with, family and friends. And we'll create that for you. And let's set up systems of rewards and punishment to actually suppress your old behaviour and and encourage those new ones. Because, you know, we welcomed you with with love bombing and and making you so welcome. And those deep psychological needs, we've meant for you right at the beginning. And if you want more of it, will you do what we say? And and if you want us to to keep on accepting you, you become what we want to, to do. And there's often a closed system of logic and authoritarian structures, where you're told what to believe. You're told what to believe. There's no room for questioning. You're not allowed to ask questions, because then you get victimised. How dare you question our leader? And slowly, slowly, unaware, unaware of what's going on, they move you on to greater dependence and greater um, uh, uh, dependence on them, losing your financial backing, losing your, your, your social backing. All sorts of things like that. Now, by the grace of God, they're not here on campus anymore. Because of the forced quiet times that they used to have, one of the leaders of this movement back in Boston in the International Churches of Christ actually read the scriptures and understood the grace of God and actually wrote the 95 Thesis like a Luther and posted it on their website. And today, the International Churches of Christ doesn't exist as the old International Churches of Christ. But boy, I tell you what, when I was in first year, this was very appealing. Here is a group of people that presented to you a holy way of living. Here's a group of people that told you, here's the secret to to Christian life. This is how you can make a go of it. We just need to control your life a little bit and organise it for you. I tell you what, if I met up with them, I probably would have signed up. Be careful. They're greedy, they exploit, and they're full of fiction. And we sort of go, well, God, why aren't you doing something about it? Well, the passage actually beforehand says that their destruction will come swiftly. That is, God isn't going to let this go on forever. Judgment will actually come. But you say, what's the delay? Well, I hope you'll come back next week. uh, Because chapter 3 actually explains the delay of why that's happening. But before he goes on, he comes with this incredible sentence that goes from verse 4 to verse 9. It's actually an if-then statement, if you have a look at it, verses 4 to 9, except there are four ifs before a then comes. Normally, you know, most people say, if something happens, then something happens. Well, Peter goes, if, 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 then it comes. And it's actually quite helpful the way that the New International Version, at least, has set it out for us. 
He starts off saying, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment. It says, if God didn't spare the angels in verse 4, that's referring to Genesis chapter 6, referring to 1 Peter 3, referring to Jude 6. If God didn't spare them, well, God knows how to judge, is the, 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 the statement. It speaks about the sons of God who understood as angels back in those days coming down and marrying the daughters of, daughters of men. It's a great thing for you and your senior groups to, to have a, a hash at, to work out what it's all about. But it's rebellion that Peter highlights. God didn't spare them and plunge them into gloomy dungeons, an unusual Greek word of mythology about the place of punishment. And the sense of it is, if God didn't spare them, he won't spare us as well, is the assumption. If these false teachers were privileged people, they ought to understand that their privilege won't give them immunity. It doesn't matter whether they're angels or not. God didn't spare even angels. He has them hellbound. The next if comes and talks about Noah. If he didn't spare the ancient world, verse 5, of Noah's generation, all but eight were saved, the preacher of righteousness was saved, and seven others, his family. If, he, if that world wasn't spared, well then, God knows how to judge. And it's not about popularity. Poor old Noah was building his ark on a hill somewhere. Everybody was laughing at him. And it doesn't matter whether you're popular or not. Popularity won't give you immunity either. God knows how to judge and he'll do a proper job and he'll do it completely. But there's also a hint of another thing that comes through in this if. That is, not only does God know how to judge, God knows how to save, rescues Noah and his family. There's another if. Uh, It talks about Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 18. The third argument in verse 6, if God condemns Sodom and Gomorrah, the twin cities who are an example of evil and judgment, back in Genesis 18, if God knows how to do that, well, he knows what evil is. He knows what judgment is like. He'll do it. And then the last one, and if at the same time God knew how to rescue Lot out of that midst of Sodom and Gomorrah, a righteous man tormented by sin, if God knows how to do that, one of the problems I have when I'm working through 2 Peter and I look back at Genesis 19 is that I don't think it immediately strikes me that Lot was a righteous man. But I think three times here in 2 Peter, it keeps on emphasising it. He was a righteous man, that righteous man, his righteous soul. Three times it says that he's righteous. Bit of an eye-opener. Because I keep on thinking that Lot was the one who was really attracted to the city and he was reluctant to leave it. But as you read with these New Testament glass back in the Old Testament, you actually see he was a man who was actually trying to stand up for righteousness. There's only traces of it. But that's what he was doing. He was standing against the flow. He was going against the tide. The alien who still understands something of what it is to be righteous. And they see him as a threat, as a judge. It's a challenge to us, isn't it? Because are we tormented by the sin of the society round about us? I think so often we're titillated, we're, we're excited about seeing those things, you know? We, 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 look at, we look at big headlines in the newspapers. It talks about scandals across the telly or something. Pictures inside and we buy the paper because we go tut-tut and we actually want to get involved with it. But God says, if I know about judgment 
and I know about salvation back then, you can trust me that I'm a God who brings rescue and judgment now. God is the one who can do it. God is the one who can hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment. God is the one who's going to bring salvation. Now, it's a little bit hard, I think, this passage, because I think it's hard for us to, you know, maybe identify with the angels or something like that. But I think some of us might identify with the loneliness of of Noah, standing against the tide, going against the, the, the flow. It's really, really hard. Some of you becoming Christian might know that. Uh, I've told these stories lots and lots of times, but it was hard. When I decided to become a Christian, my father wrote me out of his will. He didn't talk to me for eight months. To make a decision that's difficult, it's actually really, really hard. And we cry, what are you doing, God? When I was working at the University of New South Wales, one of the Jewish girls at Shalom College actually became a Christian. Her parents wrote a death notice in the local newspaper. It's hard. Some of you are making big decisions about going to full-time Christian ministry. You're thinking about doing the Howard Guinness Project in a few years. And as you start working, and everybody says the way to success is to get lots of money, to buy a piece of land, to get married, live in good suburbs, it's just really hard to say, no, what really is important is serving God. What really important is doing those things, which is going to sacrifice those physical comforts. That's going to sacrifice land. That's going to sacrifice relationships. Sometimes it's really hard and it feels alone as a Christian. And sometimes I think we we feel desensitised, like the Sodom and Gomorrah. It's just all around us. I remember when The Simpsons first started. I'm that old. I remember the first few episodes of The Simpsons. And I remember people, Christian elders around the place, who used to say, tut, tut, that, that just, that's just not a nice show to see dysfunctional families. It's just not a good example. And I think some of us just thought, yeah, look, there's probably truth in that. But I don't think I bat an eyelid now when I watch The Simpsons or any of the shows on TV, it just washes over me because that's the way the world is. A friend of a friend of mine actually said that uh, uh, she worked for the um, Films and Classification Board. You know, you know, they've got to watch all these movies to give a classification to them. And, you know, the first few, it was just shocking seeing some of the things that, that goes through and you've got to make conscious decisions of how many times things happen and what happens and, and therefore give a, a, a decent classification. After a few, your whole brain just goes numb. And I think if we've been numb to our world like Sodom and Gomorrah, totally desensitised to the evil that's around us, or that you're actually pricked, to the, your consciousness is pricked and you actually see it, but once again you seem to be going against the tide. And what God says is... What Peter says what God is doing is, don't worry, hang on. God knows how to judge. Look at his track record. And God knows how to save. The rest of the chapter really is a a bit of an identity kit, a picture of what false teachers are like. Um, uh, In the first week, I mentioned um, 
how um, uh, we want to learn proper anatomy before we learn the broken bones and all that sort of stuff. We want to know some sense of the truth and therefore we can identify the false things. Or um, how uh, my friend who, who was at uh, the Bank of England learning to count real money and then so when the false one comes, you just pick it up. Uh, here's a little fun thing that we did at a, a weekend away a few weeks ago. I wonder if you, now that you stared at it for a little bit, um, whether you can notice the differences between the two pictures. Do you see any? Just a bit of fun, right? Here we go. Uh, clock? That was an easy one. Big clock? The left-hand cross. Ah, the left-hand cross, yeah? Big, tall cross. Shorter cross. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Two windows. One window. Lots of little bars and stuff. No bars and stuff, yeah. It's amazing what you can do with Photoshop. Um, I had a few others, but we don't have time to go through them all. Uh, (laughs) That would have been great fun. Here's your identikit of false teachers. You've, You've looked at the true... You know that you need to add to your faith those things that we saw a couple of weeks ago. But here's some of the marks of what they're like. They're arrogant. They despise authority. They slander celestial beings. They blaspheme in ignorance. They're like brute beasts. They despise authority, the authority that comes from God, that requires submission. That's like us. I don't think we like authority being told what to do. We like equality, especially in Australia. It's just so funny in, in this world. I can still remember when we first came to Australia and Dad just, you know, catch a taxi. You just sit in the back. And it was shocking for him when he saw everybody just get into that front passenger seat in Australia. It's just something built into our society that there is no upper class, there is no class, everybody's middle class. There is just this egalitarianism. We don't like authority. We don't like being told what to do. It's a rebelliousness that actually comes out of ignorance. Because it's our knowledge base which actually distinguishes us from brute beasts. It's a fact that we know that we can make decisions over and above our instincts. Whereas brute beasts, well, they always operate out of their instincts, out of their primary drives and motivation of their physical being. We can deny ourselves our primary motivation. And what Peter says is these false teachers, they're arrogant. They act on the instincts. They're like brute beasts. And of their lust, in verses 13 and 14, about them carousing in broad daylight, about them being involved with adultery, being seducers of the unstable. They're caught in their lust in verse 13. It it describes them doing it in broad openness. They don't care. And they're experts in greed, in verses 14 to 17. They follow the ways of Balaam. They're people who, who, they're like Balaam, who lead the people of God astray over Baal appeal, doing it for money. That's what they do. You can read that back in Numbers chapter 22 and 23. That's what they're like. I did a quick little Google search of the list of Christian evangelist scandals in Wikipedia. It's terrible, dating back, you know, and I'm sure it's not all of them. Here's just some of them. But hear the whole stack of them in the last few years, going up to 2008. And it's just an indictment. It's just terrible, the sort of things that can happen. Trapped by sexual temptation, trapped by greed, they become false teachers. 
I don't know whether you know those people. I don't. But it's always a temptation. And I plead with you that you pray for your, the leaders of your congregation, leaders of your churches, leaders of your Christian group, that God may deliver them, deliver the leaders out of the temptation of greed and of lust. Because it's terrible. It ensnares. But that's the mark of a false teacher. To acting out of their instincts of greediness and lust. Apparently, just uh, a couple of years ago, the, the uh, Internal Revenue Service, the R- R- IRS in America, was just going through a whole list of evangelists of their greed and their problems. Why they're driving around with Rolls Royces and having multiple properties, ranches all over the place. The misappropriation of funds, as well as all the sexual impropriety that goes on. Another mark? They're empty. They promise much, but deliver little. They're like springs without water. A total waste of time. Mist driven by a storm. I don't know whether you remember the drought that we've been having the last couple of years. It's sort of broken now. But, I, I, I mean, I, I live in the city, and, and we, we have a veggie patch. And just... You know, the times when the clouds come over and no rain comes, it's just really annoying. There's just a sniff of promise. Oh, maybe it's going to rain. Maybe our veggie patch will actually grow. But back in a dry land, the way it's described, it's like clouds that, that are driven by a storm that, that don't deliver. Like so many cults. They promise lots. Promise that if you undertake this cult's course, that you can regain perfect memory. And you just pay lots and lots and lots and lots of money so that you'll forget that you've paid lots of money to regain your perfect memory. Or Rousseau, who wanted people to go back to naturalism and just be free people, free from institutions and structures and live freely to be degenerate like him. Or the permissivist society that actually says, hey, we, we want no censorship, we want freedom, freedom expression, that's what it's about, so let's set up a porn industry because it's right to have a freedom of, 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 of our expression. There's freedom promised. And yet what I see now is people who are slaves to pornography, especially men, on the internet, nor other places. Much promise of rich wealth, freedom, and yet what I see is people utterly addicted to pornography. The hard thing about this passage is that there are no real imperatives. There's no commands, this is what you ought to do. So whatever I tell you now, it's an implication from what we've learnt. And I think one of the first things is that if you're a teacher, you ought to heed James' warning. In chapter 3, verse 1, Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach, we judge more strictly. Work hard at it. Make sure you're teaching the truth. But for us who are hearers, well, all of us, I guess, who are hearers, how do you make sure that you are going to be on your guard? Or you, can think, you can be super clever, I guess. You can be so intelligent that you can just pick it up right away. I think, I think the way that we can be on our guard is by good preparation. That is, before you come to public meetings... Before you go to your church service, before you go to your Bible studies, 
It's actually a good idea to read the passage beforehand. You can stand guard and you can pay attention more closely. Because I guess for most of you, and I won't get you to put your hands up, the first time you read this passage in the recent time is when the passage was read out right before public meetings started. That was your first encounter with the passage. And frankly, you have no idea what I said is right or not, whether it's true of the passage. You've taken it on board. Now, I, I take it that in EU... We, we have good teachers and we work hard at doing it rightly, so there's a, a sense of trust. And I don't want everybody to be a whinger out there and just be critical. But there's something about preparedness, isn't it? There's something about taking good notes so that you can talk about it and review it afterwards and talk with your friends. This is one of the reasons why I think it's such a great idea that the senior studies go parallel with these talks. I'm so glad of that. that we've got a chance to debrief and talk with one another. But I guess we ought to be doing that over afternoon teas on, on any occasion. What did you learn? Did you think it was right? What was that stuff about Balaam? Oh, what was Michael pointing to about those who are bought, denying the Lord who was bought? I heard that, you know, um, the limited atonement argument, that's pretty close to that verse. There's something in there. And discuss it and think about it. Now, for some of you, that comment just went straight over your head. But it's good to sit down and think about it and talk about it. Take notes. Use your critical thinking. That's what we're on about. We're not a mind-controlled cult here. I don't want you to believe because you come to public meetings and someone up the front says it. You're here to use your critical faculties. That's what university is about. You critique. And if you're a visitor here today, I hope that that's what you find the EU is like. It's not a place where people just say, you've got to believe this. But here you are. You've got freedom and a chance to investigate openly, without pressure, to make a decision for yourself. But I guess at the back of all this is that we can trust God who holds on to the righteous and who knows how to punish the ungodly. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much that you're a God who's true to your character. That in the past we've seen your acts of judgment, that you hold the ungodly accountable. And yet, dear Lord, that you're a God of salvation, that you hold the righteous close to you. Father, in the midst of the false teachers that might be around us, we want to claim your character, that you're the God of mercy who will save and that you're a God of justice who will judge. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.